0: are listening to the sermon audio from Renaissance Church. We pray that this message equips you to be formed into the image of Christ as you grow in your love of God and it fuels you to love your neighbor as yourself. We are convinced that while this sermon audio is beneficial, it should only be supplemental and not replace local church involvement. The pastor God has put over your life For your commitment to gather in person with other believers to make more disciples for the fame of Jesus. Peace be with you. Join me as I read from Titus chapter 1. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. This is the word of the Lord. Join me as I pray. Father, thank you so much that you're a God who loves us enough to give us correction, I pray that when we are people who are um, believing or spreading lies or untruth, things that aren't in your word, that you would help us to recognize that and to repent. And Father, when those around us are spreading lies or untruth, I pray that you would give us boldness to correct them, to lead them to your truth, but that you would also allow us to show them the grace and the love that you've shown us, God prepare our hearts as we hear this message, and just help us to have open hearts and open hands. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Well, for those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Rob, and I'm one of the elders here on staff at Renaissance Church. And on behalf of our uh, elder team and behalf of our staff team, uh, I want to say welcome to you. Um, I also want to encourage you, um, like I encourage our members every week, uh, to keep your Bibles open uh, during uh, the entirety of this uh, this sermon uh, from. Titus uh, chapter 1, verses 10 through 16, we'll be pulling everything from that text for, for the message today. And if you're you're interested um, on our house-to-house worship guide, you can find the outline there as well as um, quotes that I'll be using and scripture references that I'll be using during this message. Now, I wonder uh, for, for some of you, I, I want to know, um, maybe even kids that are listening in, in today, but... How many of you had, had parents who who prepared you for wise participation in our culture by instructing you what to do? Like show of hands. How many had great parents who did a great job of telling you what to do? Now, I, I would wager it's, it might just be a, a small amount because I, I would bet the majority of us had parents who were experts at telling us what not to do. right? Don't touch that. Don't do this. You better not be listening to that garbage of music, right? And they they very rarely told us what to do. They're just experts at what not to do. But you see, wise participation in a sin-infected world requires not only the the do-nots of Scripture— but also the dues, as we've been saying, right belief leads to right behavior. Sound doctrine leads to faith-filled devotion. And the apostle Paul just gave Titus a, a list of do's and do nots for the types of qualified elders he wants to lead the church in Crete. And now Titus, along with those appointed elders, must take care of these corrupt leaders who are teaching what ought not to be taught. He gives a list of two to-dos and a, a list of do-nots. And how do we figure out what those do-nots and to-dos are? Well, Paul will instruct Titus to, to first call out the deceivers. And the second thing he'll tell them to do is to correct the deceivers. Call out the deceivers and correct the deceivers. And in all of this, he desires for Titus to correct with the intent for them to come back to Christ. That's Paul's main point for Titus in these short seven verses. To correct with the intent for them to come back to Christ. So if you're with me and you have those Bibles open to the Paul's letter to Titus, we'll dive into that first point. Call out the deceivers. In the final verse of this chapter, Paul describes what these corrupt leaders look like. Look at verse 16 with me. It says, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient. They're unfit for any good work. Paul's saying their behavior denies their beliefs. That just because somebody identifies with the name of God does not mean that God identifies with them. You'll be able to call out these corrupt leaders, not merely by what they teach, but by watching what they do. This is Paul's summation of the infiltration of these bogus leaders in this church plant. He says they're unfit, verse 16. They're unfit to lead the corrupt, and they can do no good works. And then earlier on in verse 10, he says, For there are many who are insubordinate, they're empty talkers, they're deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. In verses 10 and 11, he reveals the identity and the influence of these corrupt leaders. Paul Paul identifies them as a whole group who is full of hot air. Their speech has no substance. It's empty. They don't submit to the sound doctrine of Christ. And on top of it all, they deceive others. And the majority of them, the vast majority of them, are of this circumcision group. Now, what does that mean? Well, they were ethnically Jewish Cretans who said that they followed Jesus, but similar to the problem in the church in Galatia, these ethnically Jewish Cretans demanded that non-Jewish Cretans be circumcised, that they follow the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament and the Sabbaths and the dietary laws, that if you eat something that is deemed unclean, you will become unclean. If it's impure, you will become impure. They forgot what Jesus said to other Jewish leaders just a couple decades prior. Jesus said to the Pharisees, then are you without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Thus, Mark says, he declared all foods clean. He's saying all dietary laws are null in void. It's not what comes from with outside to the inside that defiles a per- person. And so Paul, in this brilliant move, he, he quotes one of their own philosophers in verse twelve, a dude by the name Epimenides, where Epimenides says, "Listen, my own people, Cretans, they're always liars, they're vicious beasts, and they're lazy gluttons." And then Paul adds his own commentary. He goes, hmm, "It it's true, <laughs> they they are. This is their identity." And their influence is deceiving whole families. They're upsetting them by conflating and wedding Jewish ceremonial laws, food laws, and circumcision. They're wedding that and Cretan man-made laws with God's gospel of grace. To put it simply, they're saying, Jesus plus what we tell you will get you forgiveness of sins. They're saying, yeah, I I get you. You love Jesus. But if you really love Jesus, then you would have yourself circumcised. You want a real commitment? Circumcise yourself. Paul says they're liars. They're deceivers. And to top it all off, they're only in this gig to make money. They're in it for, verse 11, shameful gain. Now, what deceived households and families back then is the same deception that many of us have succumbed to, and it's this. It's the wedding, the marrying, the conflation of the gospel of the eternal kingdom of God with lesser temporary movements and man-made laws and creeds. It's the wedding of God's eternal kingdom with temporary man-made movements and laws. And this is infiltrating the, the church, whether it be it by books we sometimes read or by Instagram influencers. And this was even clearly depicted in last week's ungodly and sin-filled riot and insurrection at our nation's capital. So what we saw was the wedding of two different and two opposing views. Individuals we saw with flags that say, Jesus saves and God bless America, supporting and even violently storming the Capitol. This is inconsistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ would denounce every move in the strongest terms. For Jesus taught in Matthew 5, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And even worse, this sends a false picture of the Jesus Christ that we find in Scripture. Last week's actions for people who call themselves Christians are the antithesis of what Jesus taught and lived. The mixing of pseudo-Christianity with crazed and counter-biblical actions is putting on display to the world a false gospel. I can think of few things more unbiblical than the wedding of Christianity to a singular nation, a singular flag, or a singular political party. For Christians, we have one identity, and that is in Christ alone. The Christ who did not just come for one nation, he's the Christ who has come for all nations, All tribes, all races, in all places. And to say anything else is a lie. To say anything else is blasphemous. It's anti Christ. It's claiming to know Jesus, but denying him with your works. These are not my words, these are Jesus's words from Matthew 7. Listen, just because somebody identifies with the name of Jesus does not mean that Jesus will identify with them because they make faith in Christ a means to their end instead of making Christ their end. Like the corrupt leaders in Crete, it must be called out. And this isn't the only example in our faux Christian nation we see this. We see celebrity preachers and pundits pontificating that if you give enough money to their ministry, then you'll be healed. You'll be healthy and wealthy for the rest of your life. And that is a lie of the prosperity gospel. Or that if you really loved Jesus, then you would vote for this candidate or that candidate. It's a lie. Or that if you really love Jesus, you must stand with or against a movement. You must stand with or against a critical theory. Or you must support or deny a certain ism, be it capitalism, socialism, Marxism, or me-myself-ism. Listen, if anyone tells you that if you are a Christian, you must adopt this other temporary ideal, they're a liar. They're a deceiver. They're putting the shoulds of man over the musts of scripture. Essentially, they're telling you to pledge allegiance to a man-made temporary kingdom like the corrupt teachers used the faith as a means to their greedy end. Anytime you're invited or you invite others to a temporary idealism or identity, you immediately compromise Your eternal citizen identity. It's not to say that we're not to have opinions or thoughts about this cultural moment. It's to say that this cultural moment cannot, should not ought not dictate what we believe about Jesus and how we treat other people, but rather our core convictions in the crucified Savior and his finished work on the cross of Christ and in his empty tomb has to be the movement of church-wide transformation that informs our participation in culture, not our allegiance to culture, but our participation in it. R.C. Sproul, the late R.C. Sproul, who just passed away last year, he writes this in the prayer of the Lord. The only way the kingdom of God is going to be manifest in this world before Christ comes is if we manifest it by the way we live as citizens of heaven and subjects of the king. We have an eternal allegiance, which is primary. That must inform our temporary participation. And we must call out leaders who are telling us we should do otherwise. Paul instructs Titus to do so. We must call out the deceivers. But point number two, we must also correct the deceivers. He says in As he keeps going, therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Now, Paul is speaking in broad brushstrokes here, in generalities, right? We don't know what the myths are. If you want to come grab the six commentaries off my shelf, you can have about a thousand page worth of reading of what those myths could have been. We don't know what they exactly were. There are many of them. We don't know which man-made commands he's referring to. There are many of them. What we do know is that they were lies since they were turning people away from the truth. We see that in verse 14. They're adding a list of shoulds and oughts to the gospel of grace. And anytime you add something to the gospel, you subtract grace It's no longer good news, but life draining good advice. And Paul says, rebuke them sharply. Even in verse 11, he says to silence them. Now, some of you are aware of this uh, about my story. I used to be uh, an elementary public school teacher. I was a music teacher. And when I had my first and second graders uh, in the music class, they, they, they got super talkative during transitions. When we transitioned from the drum circle to learning lyrics to a, a brand new song. And so I would say to, to my little guys and gals, I'd get their attention and say, hey, touch your top lip to your bottom lip. It, instant silence. It worked every time. But I wasn't just doing this to shut them up. I was doing this. I was silencing them so that they are able to listen. Paul wants these corrupt teachers silenced so that they can listen. He wants Titus to dismiss their teachings without dismissing them. Titus must correct with the intent for them to come back to Christ. Because another word for rebuke, you saw that word rebuke them sharply, is to correct. Paul wants a clean cut. It's like a sharp knife separating the fat from the meat. He wants a clean distinction for what is a lie and what is a truth. You see, to rebuke is not just pointing out what is wrong. It's pointing them to life-giving truth, because you won't be able to teach others what's wrong just by telling them what's wrong. I mean, federal agents in the the counterfeit department, when when they teach others to spot counterfeit money and coins, they don't do so by studying the counterfeits. I mean, think about it. If they were to do that, they wouldn't be able to identify the brand new counterfeits that are coming out on the market a week or a month from them. Now, what they do, instead of studying the counterfeits, they study the genuine bills until they master the look of the real thing. So that when they see a counterfeit, they're able to recognize it. You see, if we only tell others what they're doing wrong or what they're believing wrong, then how will they be able to identify other counterfeit gospels? We must Also show them the truth, the way of the master who is Christ to dispel counterfeit gospels. Show them the truth so they're able to identify the lies. To only tell somebody that they're wrong is to try and dispel darkness with darkness. To teach them what's wrong is to say, focus on the darkness and then try to see other dark things. You don't dispel darkness with darkness. You dispel darkness with light. And Jesus is the light. And Jesus says that we must be the light of the world. And Paul knows this light. He knows what Jesus taught. That it's not what's outside of a person that makes them unclean. It's not food laws. It's not Sabbath observance. He remembers Jesus' teaching in Mark chapter 7, verse 20, that it's what comes out of a person is what defiles him it's the heart and so he sheds light we see Paul shedding light on these corrupt teachers in verse 15 he says to the pure all things are pure but to the defiled and the unbelieving nothing is pure but both their minds and their consciences are defiled Now, if we slow this down, if we take a look at verse 15, Paul is picking on this common Jewish motif that whoever is defiled and whoever they touch becomes defiled. Whoever touches a food that is defiled, they themselves become defiled. But Paul does something here. He has this devastating one-two punch that these corrupt leaders, instead of keeping themselves pure by eating, only eating pure things. He's saying the very fact that you need these man-made regulations reveals your own impurities. It reveals your inherent defilements. Why? Look at verse 15. He says they are unbelieving. What do you suppose that means? I'm convinced it means that they trust in their works, not in the work of Christ. They trust in their own form of righteousness, not the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. And they're trying to convince others the same. They're trying to convince others to trust in Jesus plus circumcision. Jesus plus dietary laws. Jesus plus a list of shoulds. You should do this. You should not do that. And what Paul is telling them is to stop shooting on themselves and shooting on other people because it's defiling everyone around you. You cannot clean yourself up by shooting on other people. See, Paul doesn't just tell them how unchristian their worldview is or how wrong they are. He does more than that. He corrects them with life-giving truth that Jesus did not come for us because we know how to make ourselves pure, but Jesus came for us to make us pure. So they, verse 14, would stop trusting in their man-made laws, would stop spreading myths, and that they would see, they would see the beauty of what faith alone living looks like. See, both Paul and these leaders, they agreed on one thing, that sin is like this stack of unpaid parking tickets. Corrupt leaders want to give you trips and ticks, t- uh, trip tricks and tips. Uh, they, will, they want to offer you parking lessons. They want you to get an app so you don't forget your parking meter. And what Paul wants to say, said, no, Jesus Jesus has already paid those tickets off, and he's already given you a clean, driving record. This is the good news of Jesus Christ, that Christ in faith alone, that the gospel's primary word is not due. The gospel's primary word is done because of the finished work in Jesus Christ. And he's telling them this, so that they may be sound in faith, so that they may come back to Jesus. Is this our aim when people disagree with us? Or do you call out people only to shame them? Do you call out others only to condemn them? Are you correcting them to show them how right you are? Or are you just interested in getting into a theological fight instead of calling them home to Christ? You see, when contending for the truth becomes quarrelsome, it ceases to be contending and it ceases to be truthful. When rebuking others leads to rejecting others, that's a relationship that is built on conditions and that is the antithesis to the gospel. Or when correcting others leads to cancel culture, it is no longer Christ-like. Or do you seek to correct others with the intent of calling them home to Christ? You see, why why do you suppose that the Apostle Paul didn't say, get rid of them, excommunicate them, kick them out? He could have. He was actually really good at this before he knew Jesus, when he killed Christians for disagreeing with him. It's easier to get rid of people. It's easier to reject people. This type of work, though, Requires patience, faithfulness, love, peace, and long-suffering. This type of work requires steadfastness, sacrifice, and service towards people who seem like enemies. Why would Paul do this? It's because he knew he was once an enemy of God, and Christ still came for him. Paul knows that he was one of these men. Paul knows that if God could save a moralistic, prideful, self-righteous sinner like himself, the chief of all sinners, then Jesus can save anybody. Paul knew the depths of his sin were far worse, and yet God's grace went deeper. Paul knows that when he Deserve to be left alone and rejected. Christ never gave up on him. And how do we know this? Well, if you fast forward in the letter to Timothy to chapter three, Paul reminds Titus, for we, he's including himself, he says, for we were once foolish. For we were once disobedient. We were led astray. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures. We were passing our days in malice and envy. We hated others and we hated one another. But, he says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of our Savior appeared, he saved us not by works not by a list of shoulds, not by works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. He did not give us what we deserved, but he washed us clean with the regeneration, the rebirth of our hearts, and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. When he poured him out on us richly through Jesus Christ, and we were justified not by works, but by grace alone, we might come heirs of this eternal citizenship. God saved us, not because we were pure. He came to save us, to make us pure. God did not save us because we were lovable. He saved us to come and make us lovable. And it's through faith in Christ alone, not by our works, that he saves us and puts us in a right relationship with us. And he goes on to say, this saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things, Titus. So that those who once were deceivers can now be believers. And you know what he says happens? They will then be devoted to good works. You know how you produce good works? Not by doing good works good. Good works are produced by knowing the grace that is offered to you in Jesus Christ. If you want to see those deceivers turn back into believers, show them the grace of God that you did not deserve. And how will you show them the grace of God, church? It's when we remember we were just like them, even worse. And so I want to leave you with these three thoughts. These three thoughts when it seems like there's someone who might be deceiving you. Is the first thing I want you to consider is to call out yourself before you call out others. The reality is is that we all have a list of shoulds that we add to the gospel. That we at times deceive ourselves. Paul, in another letter in the book of Galatians, he tells the church to keep a close watch on themselves to keep a close watch on themselves before they go call out anybody else. So the first thing I want you to do is to call out yourself and realize that God has already showed you grace and he will continue to show you grace as you are made aware of where you've been putting your own man-made laws and creeds onto the gospel of Jesus Christ. Second, when you call out and correct others, I want you to do it with a gracious curiosity. A gracious curiosity. That we don't know everything that might be going on in a person's life when we interact with them. Our intent is to show them the grace of God by incarnating the grace of God. By being the presence of grace in their life. Then we're not there to shame them. We're not there to condemn them, but to invite them back into sound faith, to sound faith in Christ. And the last thing I want to encourage us to do is in all of this, what the Apostle Paul wants in all of his churches, not just the church in Crete, is unity. Is unity. Unity in the gospel of Jesus. Unity in Christ alone. I want to call us to pray for unity. Pray that God wouldn't just lead others back to sound faith, but would even continue to lead us back to sound faith. Because we, we were once like them. We were once like, we are no different. We are all in need of this grace of God. So let's be a church that corrects with the intent to call others, including ourselves, back to Christ. Amen? Church, would you pray with me? Father, help us. Help us to be a bold yet also compassionate and gracious church that not only calls out deceivers and not only corrects deceivers,